Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. Alex is, of course, off tonight. We have a lot to get to on this Thanksgiving Eve, including details about the latest mass shooting in America. Or should I say shootings, plural. As the suspect accused of killing five people in an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs this weekend faces a judge for the first time, even as people thousands of miles away mourn victims killed overnight at a Walmart in Virginia. Much more on that ahead. We'll also talk to the winner of Alaska's sole House seat. NBC has just projected that Democrat Mary Paltola is the winner of that seat, and she'll be returning to Washington instead of Sarah Palin. We'll get Paltola's reaction to her victory in just a few minutes. Tonight, we're going to have multiple conversations about accountability, legislative accountability, electoral accountability. But we're going to start with legal accountability the legal accountability that may be coming for former President Trump. Tomorrow, a new law passed earlier this year in the state of New York goes into effect. It is called the Adult Survivors Act. That first-in-the-nation law creates what is known as a look-back window, essentially a one-year period for adult survivors of sexual abuse who miss their original statute of limitations to bring civil lawsuits against their alleged abusers. What that means for former President Trump is that the writer, E. Jean Carroll, who has publicly accused Trump of raping her in a department store dressing room in the 1990s, is going to file a lawsuit against Trump on that claim tomorrow. So that matter will finally, actually get litigated. Now, you might remember that because Ms. Carroll had previously been barred by the statute of limitations for charging Trump with her rape allegations themselves. The legal fight with the former president had centered around defamation. Carroll accused the president. Trump called her a liar. Carroll sued him for defamation. The crux of Trump's legal defense was simple. The statements Carroll was suing over were made while he was president. And as president, he could say whatever he wants. No accountability. Now, wild as that sounds, that was a legally viable argument. But here's the thing. Trump messed up. Last month, he called E. Jean Carroll a liar again. Smack dab in the middle of his statement, there is this, quote, E. Jean Carroll is not telling the truth. Plain as day. Carroll is expected to file a second defamation lawsuit against the former president for those statements tomorrow. And Trump, no longer the president, which means that either he has to prove that E. Jean Carroll is lying, or he could actually be held accountable for defamation. So that is on the schedule for tomorrow. But even before that, this week has already been a terrible week for the former president legally. On Monday, we got the news that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is looking to potentially restart its criminal investigation into the $130,000 hush money payment former President Trump allegedly paid to adult film star Stormy Daniels on the eve of the 2016 presidential election. 
That one, also a little funny, because if Trump had remained a New York resident for the past few years, statute of limitations for that case would also have passed. But, in part, to get away from his legal woes in New York, the former president legally changed his state of residence to, yep, Florida, shortly after leaving office. That froze the statute of limitations for that case. So, a bit of an own goal on Trump's part there. Yesterday, of course, we got the news that the Supreme Court ruled against Trump in his case against the House Ways and Means Committee, which means that finally, after all these years, the Treasury Department is going to send them Trump's tax returns. Now, that came on top of the news yesterday. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham testified for more than two hours to a grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia. He testified for their investigation into Trump's attempt to overthrow the 2020 election. And then, on top of all that, in the past 24 hours, we have gotten two big pieces of news in the two cases against President Trump that the Department of Justice just handed over to newly appointed special counsel Jack Smith. First, panel of judges in a federal appeals court signaled yesterday that they are likely to end former President Trump's lengthy special master review in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. A federal judge in Florida had ordered that a special master should decide what documents the Justice Department can get access to, effectively slowing that whole investigation down for months. Well, now it appears that the whole process is likely to go away. Special counsel Jack Smith is likely to get access to all of those documents sooner rather than later. As for the second case that Special Counsel Smith just inherited, the Justice Department investigation into January 6th and Trump's attempt to overturn the election. The New York Times is out with bombshell new reporting about that investigation tonight. The headline reads, Justice Department seeking to question Pence in January 6th investigation. And according to people familiar with former Vice President Mike Pence's thinking, he is, quote, open to considering the request. Pence was a central figure in President Trump's effort to overturn the election and would be an invaluable witness. But at least when it came to the House investigation matter into the matter, Pence had always staunchly refused to testify. So his cooperating with the special counsel, that would be a huge leap forward. Joining us now, Michael Schmidt, Washington correspondent from The New York Times and one of the reporters who broke this story. Michael, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Talk me through the timeline here. What is it looking like? So we know that in recent weeks before the appointment of the special counsel, uh, Thomas Wyndham, the lead investigator on the January 6th inquiry, the one looking at whether Trump broke the law when he and his allies tried to overturn the election, reached out to Pence's side to say that they wanted to talk to him. Now, it will be many weeks, if not months, before the government hears from Pence, because Pence will have to be subpoenaed and Trump will try and stop this. Trump will try to assert executive privilege. This is a play that he has run before where he has tried to use these claims to stop former top White House aides from speaking with investigators. So far for Trump, this has not worked, but it has slowed the process. And when you have someone like a vice president and you have questions of privilege that a former president is trying to assert, 
it will become a very formalized process. This is, this is not just something where investigators or FBI agents could sit down with Pence and do a quick interview. This will be something that there's a lot of back and forth in. My guess is that a judge will have to get involved at some point. And eventually, if the government really wants uh, to hear from Pence, they probably will. Right. To your point, this is a play that we have seen before. And most of the time, what it succeeds in doing is slowing things down. Part of your reporting tonight is that this request came before Attorney General Garland appointed Jack Smith as the special counsel in this case. Do you have any sense of if that has slowed this down at all? No, there's no indication that it has. And look, these investigations that the special counsel is inheriting are two fully formed investigations. The government has been looking for many months at the January 6th uh, allegations that Trump broke the law when he and his, his different associates were trying to come up with schemes to essentially try and get the vice president to pick who won the election, despite what the actual results were. The other investigation, the Mar-a-Lago one, is well along. It has there's been a search warrant that was executed at Trump's home in Florida. The government has interviewed many different witnesses. Those investigations have are proceeding and are being done by these line prosecutors who will be absorbed by the special counsel's office. The special counsel himself, Mr. Smith, who's coming back from being in The Hague where he was trying these uh, war, he was a war crimes prosecutor, he will have to get up to speed and he will be the one who has to make major decisions about whether to grant immunity or whether to execute search warrants, whether to offer plea deals, major investigative decisions like that. But the work of the of these investigators uh, will continue and can continue while he is getting up to speed. Um, will it slow it down? My guess is not in a noticeable way that us uh, standing on the outside looking in will be able to tell. The attorney general went to great lengths last week when he announced the appointment of the special counsel that this would not slow the inquiry. So that's that's sort of where it stands. Mike, it strikes me, I'm sure it strikes you that, that so much of what Pence experienced has already been made public from his January 4th Oval Office meeting with Trump lawyer John Eastman to the conversation between Pence's chief of staff and lead Secret Service agent on January 5th, warning that the president could turn on Pence himself. Your sense of what the Justice Department is most interested in hearing directly from Pence himself? Well, my guess is that they want to know what Trump's efforts were to pressure him. How under pressure did he feel from the president? Did he feel like the president was trying to rope him into a criminal conspiracy? Did they think that the, that that Pence thought that what Trump was doing was untoward? Just hearing the account of the vice president, you have to remember the Pence was the center of Trump's efforts on January 6th. The people who stormed the Capitol said, hang Mike Pence. The president wanted Pence to to throw out the electors that were there for Biden and pick his electors to allow him to stay in office. It all came down to Pence. He was the central fulcrum of what Trump, where Trump wanted this entire thing to pivot on. So you would want to hear from him. You would want to know 
what his accounts were of his meeting, what meetings were with Trump. We know that at times Pence had aides in the room. Were there other interactions that Trump had with um, with Pence in which they there were other discussions about this? How does Pence's accounts of these meetings hold up with other individuals that were around the White House at the time? Is there differences between the two? What kind of witness would Pence make? How cooperative will he be? Uh, these are all things that if you're an investigator and you're trying to look at everything that went on around January 6th, this is, this is one of the most important people you'd want to talk to. Mike, talk us through how Pence sees this request from the DOJ as legitimate while not seeing the requests from the 1-6 committee that way. How does it square up? Well, I think that there's a few things. The, the Congressional Committee never subpoenaed Pence. So there, there has never been a formal request for his testimony. He said while he was on book tour last week that Congress was not entitled to his testimony. Uh, I think there's some argument out there that a vice president doing this would set a bad precedent of, of sorts of, of some, you know, sometimes arguments of precedent are made when people don't don't really want to cooperate. He has criticized the committee saying that it was partisan or whatever. At the end of the day, if the Justice Department subpoenas him, he there isn't really much that he can do. If Trump is not able to assert privilege, Pence will have to cooperate. And it will be difficult for there to be a privilege claim for a range of reasons. One of them is that Trump doesn't control it anymore. The current president does. And I don't think Biden is going to allow Trump to assert privilege to stop this. And Pence has uh, written about some of this in his book. So if he was able to put it in a book, the government will make the argument, well, if you can put it in a book, why can't you talk to the grand jury about it? So he will be sort of uh, legally compelled ultimately to answer these questions. And I think that he sees the criminal investigation from the department as something that is more significant than the January 6th investigation. Mike, I've got about a minute left, but you point this out in your article, which is it's unprecedented for many reasons, but in part because three of the people involved, Pence, Trump, President Biden, all considering or committed to presidential bids for 2024, how does that then factor in here? Well, it certainly provides an incredible backdrop because here you have a central witness who will also be a potential opponent in a Republican primary of Trump. He could do an enormous amount of damage to Trump as a witness. Um, his account could really help prosecutors and Look, this is way down the road, but certainly calling a vice president to testify against a president, while that's something that sounds like it's out of a novel or a thriller, would be pretty compelling and would be something that probably the government would want to use, especially uh, if Pence turns out to be someone who has a clear recollection of what went on and a clear ability to recite uh, what you know, what he knows and what he experienced. So in that sense, he could really damage Trump. Um, he could damage Trump if he testified publicly in front of the January 6th committee. Um, apparently, he doesn't want to do that on the Justice Department side. I think he'll have far less of a choice. Michael Schmidt, Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Mike, thank you for your time tonight. 
Coming up, we are one step closer tonight to knowing the final balance of power in the House for the next Congress. Alaska Democratic Congresswoman Mary Peltola joins us later this hour after she was just re-elected, beating Sarah Palin again. But first, a string of mass shootings this holiday week is bringing into sharper focus America's enduring gun problem. The executive director of Guns Down America joins me next to discuss the path forward to preventing gun violence. Stay with us. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. With only five weeks left on the calendar, 2022 already on track to become the second highest year for mass shootings in America, with more than 600 incidents recorded. That is according to the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit group that tracks gun violence in this country. The shooting that broke the 600 mark was Colorado Springs. Five people died Saturday in the shooting attack on Club Q, an LGBTQ gathering place, making it the 601st mass shooting incident this year. The suspect in that attack made their first appearance in court today via video and was ordered to be held without bond. Defense attorneys for the suspect said in court papers filed last night that the shooter identifies as non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. They are facing five murder counts and may also face hate crime charges, but the motive behind the attack remains unclear. The deadly shooting at a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia overnight was mass shooting number 607 this year. A man armed with a handgun and multiple magazines opened fire inside the store, killing six people before killing himself. The suspect has been identified as a longtime Walmart manager, and the motive, at this point, also remains unclear. Chesapeake police released the names of most of the victims tonight. They are 38-year-old Brian Pendleton, 52-year-old Kelly Pyle, 43-year-old Lorenzo Gamble, 70-year-old Randy Blevins, all from Chesapeake, 22-year-old Tynika Johnson from Portsmouth, Virginia. Police did not identify or release a picture of the sixth victim. 
a 16-year-old boy from Chesapeake. So from mass shooting 601 on Saturday to mass shooting 607 on Tuesday, that means in between, in those three days, there were another five mass shootings in this country. That's more than one mass shooting per day. Number 602 also happened on Saturday in Washington Park, Illinois. One person was killed, three injured. Number 603, also Saturday in Philadelphia, Mississippi. One killed, six injured. Number 604, on Sunday in Hennessy, Oklahoma. Four killed, one injured. Number 605, on Sunday in Dallas, Texas. Four people were injured. Number 606 happened yesterday in West Palm Beach, Florida. Two were killed, two injured. And today, an incident in Philadelphia left four teenagers injured, becoming mass shooting 608. The number 608 just refers to mass shootings, defined by Gun Violence Archive as incidents where four people or more were shot or killed, not including the shooter. But if you take into account the total number of deaths from gun violence in this country for all causes, that number exceeds 39,000 just in 2022. And again, we still have five weeks to go. In Virginia alone, there have been three mass shooting incidents in the last 10 days. Six people killed at the Walmart store last night, three students killed at the University of Virginia on November 13th, and another incident in Chesterfield County last Friday in which a mother and three children were killed in a quadruple homicide. Gun reform advocates point out that Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, managed to tweet about the latest mass shooting in his state without using the word gun, gunman, or shooting. Governor Youngkin was also asked today about gun violence in Virginia, and he said, quote, we'll talk about it. We will talk about this. Today is not the day. It's not the day, but it will be, and we will talk about it. Well, if today is not the day to talk about it, when is the day? If there's a shooting every day and the clock is constantly resetting, won't it always be too soon? Joining us now, Igor Volsky, executive director of Guns Down America and author of Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. Igor, as always, thank you for being with us. You know, we have more than 600 mass shootings so far this year, more than 39,000 victims of gun violence, three mass shooting incidents alone in Virginia in the past 10 days. It seems like it's not too soon to be having this conversation. No, we should be talking about this every single day because we know that the families of the names you just read out are going to have that empty chair at the Thanksgiving table. They're going to be talking about it. And frankly, our leaders need to be talking about it as well. And that extends beyond the Virginia governor, by the way, I think. It extends to Virginia senators, Tim Kaine and Mark Warner, who I think when they come back from the Thanksgiving break have a real responsibility to urge Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to bring to the Senate floor and actually vote on bipartisan House-passed legislation to ban assault weapons, to expand background checks. We all have to talk about it, but most importantly, those uh, elected officials who have the power to do something, they need to act. You think that can legitimately get done during lame duck session? 
I think we should at least try if we decide we're not going to uh, we're not going to try to get this to the president's desk like he called for it. It's certainly going to fail. But I was as surprised as you and I think most of our viewers when we got the Murphy Corden bill across the finish line as well. You know, this is the thing. There is really um, not a lot of muscle memory from politicians, even champions on this issue, to actually fight. And as I look back at the election we just had, when voters returned a gun violence prevention majority into the Senate, where voters in key states like Wisconsin, Colorado, uh, and Pennsylvania said that they would prefer candidates who support uh, gun violence prevention, when you saw that great poll uh, out of circle just a couple of days ago of young Latinos saying that gun violence prevention is an absolute priority for them. There isn't any reason that our elected officials, when they make us promises to fight for this issue when they're campaigning, that they shouldn't, in this lame duck session, before Republicans take control of the House, that they not use every opportunity. I know the survivors I talk to and work with every single day are demanding, and I bet a lot of your viewers are demanding it, get caught fighting and get caught trying to solve this problem. You can't talk about safety. You can't talk about crime without talking uh, about gun safety. You know, it strikes me, Igor, that one typical Republican talking point is that America is experiencing a mental health crisis, not a gun problem, as though they are mutually exclusive. But back in September, you had 205 Republicans voting against increasing mental health access in schools. So which one is it? No, exactly. And of course, people with mental uh, health conditions are much more likely to be victims of gun violence than perpetrating it. And those very same folks who you point to as voting against mental health funding, I remember for years, tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So there are certainly members of Congress who don't want to solve this crisis, who want to use it as an opportunity to help the gun industry sell more guns. And I'm convinced that the overwhelming majority of Americans uh, reject that kind of approach and support us doing what we know works, tightening our gun laws, investing in our communities, making sure we actually regulate the gun industry. Uh, and we just need our champions, our legislative champions, to build on the success that we saw just this year and continue to fight. And frankly, again, those Virginia senators and those Colorado senators whose states were rocked by the latest tragedies, it's their responsibility to privately lobby Chuck Schumer and to publicly call for a vote because we can't wait two more years while the House is in Republican hands until we actually try to get some of these bills onto the president's desk. Executive Director of Guns Down America, Igor Volsky, thank you for making the time for being with us. Much more ahead here tonight for the second time. Less than three months, a Democrat in Alaska has beaten Sarah Palin to be elected to the House. The results just came in. And next, we will talk live with Congresswoman Mary Patola. And then Elon Musk may think he's trolling the libs, but in reality, he's doing something much more dangerous. Details ahead. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. More than two weeks from Election Day, we can now say that incumbent Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski has survived a challenge from Trump-backed candidate Kelly Shabaka. And Democrat Mary Poltola has beaten Republican opponents Sarah Palin and Nick Begich and held on to the state's sole House seat. And if you're wondering why we are just getting those results, well, it's a little complicated. Alaska is a huge state with some polling places and areas with no road access. So it takes time to get those ballots in. And necessary checks of absentee ballots against voter rolls also takes time. And that is before you get to the tabulation of the vote count that happened just a short time ago. Alaska uses ranked choice voting in which voters rank their preferred candidates in order. Since no candidate got more than 50% of the vote in these races, it went to an instant runoff where the candidates with the fewest votes were eliminated, and their votes went to the next candidate choices until a winner was announced. In the case of Alaska's single House seat, this brings an end to a race that featured the state's former governor and a Republican who was running for the seat his Democratic grandfather once held. The result, also the second such victory this year. Democrat Mary Poltola, who first won this House seat in an August special election to serve out the remaining term of Congressman Don Young, who died while in office. Joining us now, Democratic Congresswoman-elect Mary Poltola of Alaska. Ms. Poltola, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. First, your reaction to your win tonight. Hi, Alicia. Well, it just feels so good that it's over. It was over seven months of this campaign and uh, two campaigns, actually, the special and then the regular election. So it just feels very good to have it wrapped up now. Good that it's over is a very honest feeling that I think a lot of us can relate to. You know, across the country, we're seeing Republicans question fair and free elections, attack the elections process. We see it even in this race with one of your opponents calling now for a repeal of ranked choice voting, wanting to get back to, quote, fair, free, transparent, clear elections. I wonder how concerned you are about this sort of movement gaining traction in a place like your state. 
it's well, I'm not sure how much traction there is to eliminate ranked choice voting at this point. I mean, clearly there were the, their detractors. It really takes uh, power away from both of the parties. And I think you saw from both party establishments that they were not in favor of this new system. But clearly Alaskans um, have spoken and, and people have participated. It hasn't been nearly as confusing as, as others may lead you to believe. But I am very much a fan of ranked choice voting at this time. Indeed. Alaska voters are sending you back to Washington with a mandate to get things done. Your sense of what that can look like in this Congress? Well, it's very challenging. Uh, I served in the legislature for 10 years, but that was 14 years ago, and I started 24 years ago. And things weren't nearly as partisan, either in Washington, D.C., or within state legislatures, or even at the municipal level now. We have really seen partisanship really take hold, and I think that is one of the good things about ranked choice voting, is it attracts more middle-of-the-road candidates, it precludes party systems from um, creating a system where people are trying to out-Democrat each other or out-Republican each other, and you get more mainstream folks uh, messaging to the mainstream of the voters. There is the process itself, and then I think there is the way that you have positioned yourself in this race. You have run what you call a pro-fish, pro-choice pro-worker campaign. It is not often that you see all of those words side by side and not only flipped a Republican seat, but then held on to it. I, I wonder what message you think that sends about what is possible for Democrats to achieve in red states. Well, I think as long as we're not speaking in kind of the canned, um, cliche type of language that I think most Americans are very tired of, and certainly Alaskans are tired of, uh, Alaskans, I can speak from, from uh, personal experience and my own experience, we like plain spoken people. We're talking about real issues that affect real people every day. Things like inflation, things like um, access to medical care, things like abundance in our natural resources. And I think those kind of issues really resonated with Alaskans. Nothing cliched about pro-fish, pro-choice, pro-worker. Democratic Congresswoman Mary Potola of Alaska joining us tonight from her victory party. That is the noise you hear in the background. Thank you so much for being here with us. Coming Thank up. You. Hate speech appears to be seeing a heyday on Twitter under the helm of the world's richest man, Elon Musk. Media Matters for America president Angela Corazon joins me after the break to discuss Twitter's inability to moderate content on the platform and how that is negatively impacting society at large. Stay with us. Honestly, to show support too to Club Q, you know, a, su a super sad situation. Uh, from what I could tell us, it's not the majority of the city that feels that way. We don't feel that way. So we thought maybe a mural like this would show support. And uh, we thought just, just, you know, Club Q Strong says so much. So the mural needed to just be kind of that focus for everybody coming up and down the Ave, would be able to read it right away, knew exactly what it was about. And uh, again, to show support, really. Just a few days after a shooter took the lives of five people at Club Q in Colorado Springs, injuring several others, a local artist decided to join his neighbors in grieving the lives lost and grappling with the fear and anxiety gripping the community by painting a mural. The artist told local reporters, quote, 
no art doesn't really, it's not going to really solve any problems. But again, we just want to put the message out there that we support the victims. Art as a way to process, mourn, provide some support in the wake of an attack on a group of people that is often the target of hate and vitriol. A community that faced a steady increase in hateful rhetoric and violent threats ahead of the mass shooting on Saturday. Recent study by the anti-bullying organization found that over the past three and a half years, 15% of the 10 million social media posts they analyzed were transphobic. That figure is not counting rhetoric from lawmakers who amplify the anti-LGBTQ plus language found online legislation like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' Don't Say Gay Bill, which bans discussion of gender identity and sexual orientation from some public school classrooms, or the proliferation of anti-LGBTQ hate groups in the past few years. Before the shooting, threats against the LGBTQ community had intensified across the country so much that the FBI issued a nationwide warning to local law enforcement weeks ago. As GLAAD National President Kate Ellis said to the Colorado Sun, quote, you can draw a straight line from the false and vile rhetoric about LGBTQ people spread by extremists and amplified across social media to the nearly 300 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced this year to the dozens of attacks in our community like this one. So it raised a lot of eyebrows this weekend when the new CEO of Twitter decided to reinstate accounts that were banned for their anti-trans posts. Accounts that repeatedly ran afoul of Twitter's long-held anti-LGBTQ harassment policy. But those anti-harassment policies might not be in place for much longer. After Musk took over the company last month, he asked Twitter's trust and safety team to review the company's policy against deadnaming. Since Musk has been at the helm of the social media company, he's overseen a stream of layoffs, resignations, and sickouts that have gutted the company's ability to perform adequate content moderation. He has overseen the return of accounts belonging to Kanye West, whose account was frozen for anti-Semitic comments, or President Donald Trump. This week, Twitter allowed a Russian embassy account to post an anti-Semitic cartoon of Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. Also, since Musk's takeover, use of hate speech, like the N-word, jumped 500%. And now Musk seems willing to not only allow accounts on his platform to defy rules against hate speech, but instead to join the chorus. Last night, he posted this video making fun of t-shirts he found in a closet at Twitter headquarters. The t-shirts had the words, Stay Woke, written on the front. New York Times reported that the T-shirts were from Twitter's Black Employee Resource Group. They were meant to support Black employees at the company and draw attention to police violence against Black people. Shirts were made after Michael Brown was killed by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. Art to process, to mourn, to provide support. But Musk, apparently, he found them funny. What does it mean? The person running a platform where hate speech is surging, decides it is funny when his employees stand against it. What does that portend? Joining us now, Angela Corazon, president and CEO of Media Matters. Angela, thank you for being with us tonight. I don't mean that last question as a rhetorical one. I want to know from you, what, what does it mean about Musk's leadership? 
So I think there's three layers of harms here that people should consider. One is that, you know, when you start to invite this, as you pointed out, when you start to welcome these accounts back, when you say these types of things are okay, when you roll back policies that are designed to protect these communities, you have direct harm to the individuals that receive the harassment. So that's harm number one. Then you have this other layer on top of it, which is the actual the temperature. Um, you know, the more of this stuff that pollutes the stream, the more of this hate and, and vitriol, as you know, sort of gets injected into Twitter, the more the rhetoric and the temperature ramps up. The climate gets worse for everybody. And you need it just makes the it, it makes it much more violent, much more likely to lead to violence. Um, it ratchets it up. So that's the that's the, the second thing. The third then is the scale where it becomes a problem for people that may never have even touched Twitter. And that's that what Twitter then is that in, under his leadership, you're not just going to see more tolerance and acceptance of these attacks. You're going to see within the mechanics of Twitter's engineering itself, not just changes to policies, but also shifting or allowing the algorithm to actually amplify and organize around this hate. And that's where the individual harms start to become much more systematized. And that's the real concern here is, and though that video and all these illustrations demonstrate the trend line that we're moving toward, roll back the policies and enforcement, welcome these people back, and then privilege all this type of behavior so that you're actually scaling it and organizing. It's organizing, but at an algorithmic level. Well, I, I want to lean into the third point you, you made there, Angelo, because there, there are people who may say, well, I don't have Twitter, right? I'm not exposed to this. That, that's not how it works. This all shows up in our day-to-day -day life. It shows up in legislation that gets proposed in states we live in. So talk us through the mechanics of how that happens and how it is more dangerous in a moment like this. Right. When you leave it, when when this kind of content gets left up, I think sometimes people say, well, sticks and stones will never break my bones. You know, why, why do we care about harmful content? You know, especially when it's targeted towards marginalized individuals or this type of disinformation. Why should it matter? What's the effect? OK, it's more than hurt feelings. And I think people need to understand that um, because the more you leave this content up, what Twitter knows, what all these platforms know is how long individuals stay on that content, how long, how, how much they interact with similar types of content. And it begins to build profiles and lookalikes. And what it starts to do is say, hey, you're somebody that's maybe never thought about this issue before. Maybe you don't, you've never expressed any indication of anti-trans violence, but perhaps based on all these other factors, you may be really interested in this. You know, you're already kind of bigoted. You're already kind of racist. Would you also like to hate trans people? Here's some lies and misinformation about what they're doing at your local school. And that's the sort of the problem with this idea that if you don't use Twitter, it doesn't affect you because it does. Because Twitter then, like, like these other platforms, become engines of radicalization. And they also provide the tools for online to offline harassment. Because it's worth keeping in mind that part of what Elon Musk wants to do is build more capabilities on Twitter for closed organizing, like we have on Telegram and these other platforms. So he wants to make it sort of a one-stop shop for both hate, harassment, abuse, and also offline action. And that's where it starts to affect everybody, even if they don't care about Twitter. Angela, I've only got about 30 seconds left, but talk us through how this then all gets rinsed and repeated by people in positions of power. Well, what ends up happening is that as the, you know, if you are in a position of power, especially in the Republican Party, part of the strategy now is you organize you organize power on what used to be considered the fringes, um, and that's partly how Donald Trump added so many people to the roles in 2020. These are all people that never touched politics on the far right, but he was organizing power there. So what that means is that you actually have elected officials that begin to validate and pander to this type of percolating extremism and mis misinformation, which makes it much more legitimate. But it also then starts to 
enshrined it in policy and everyday life beyond just the norms. It starts to put this kind of hate and harassment in laws. And we've all seen that trend over the past couple of years. What happened in Florida and elsewhere is just is just a, a few examples of that. It's happening everywhere. Angela Carson, it was not a fair question to ask you to answer in 30 seconds, and somehow you did it. Thank you, Angela Carson, president and CEO of Media Matters. Thanks for your time tonight. Up next, a major ruling from the Georgia Supreme Court that has Democrats cheering ahead of Senator Raphael Warnock's runoff election with Herschel Walker. Stay with us. This Thanksgiving weekend will be an extra special one for those living in Georgia, now that voters there are less than two weeks away from a runoff to elect a U.S. senator. Georgia voters are now able to cast a ballot this Saturday in the race between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker, following a decision today from the Georgia Supreme Court to allow early voting to begin on Saturday. The court's decision blocks an attempt by the state Republican Party to restrict early voting on the only Saturday voters will be able to cast an early ballot in the runoff. Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger had argued that Georgia law specified that early in-person voting could not be held on a Saturday following a Thursday or Friday considered a public or legal holiday. Now, of course, tomorrow is Thanksgiving, and Friday is another holiday in Georgia, one that formerly honored Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Judge in Fulton County overruled the Secretary of State, and now the Supreme Court has upheld that ruling. The Georgia Supreme Court today also issued another ruling that could boost turnout in the runoff election. The court reinstated the state's ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy one that is widely considered extreme because it bans abortion before most people even realize they're pregnant. Issue of abortion rights did help turn out voters for Democratic candidates in the midterms earlier this month, with some citing it as the reason why Democrats were able to hold on to the Senate majority in the new Congress. But it is a notably narrow majority, and should Republican Herschel Walker win, Vice President Kamala Harris will still be needed to break any ties on 50-50 votes. And it is why this race is still important to Democrats and why many Georgians might be thankful this year for the opportunity to vote early in person this Saturday. That does it for us tonight. I will see you this weekend on my show, American Voices, 6 p.m. Eastern, Saturdays and Sundays. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.